Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, September 25th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. We have a very special episode this week featuring Ourland senior producer Laura Paskus's extended interview with officials from the U.S. Forest Service. These are conversations you'll only hear through NMPBS, and it's the first time the Forest Service has made anyone from its leadership available to speak on camera since last year's historic fire season that saw the two largest fires in state history, both started as prescribed burns by the Forest Service. That's in about five minutes here on the podcast, but right now, let's get into the headlines. Police have now arrested three suspects in connection with the shooting that killed an 11-year-old boy and critically injured a relative outside Isotopes Park earlier this month. Jose Romero, Nathan Garley, and Daniel Gomez are charged with open counts of murder in the death of Froylan Villegas. Police say the three suspects mistook the truck that carried Froylan and his 23-year-old cousin, Tatiana Villegas, for a similar vehicle owned by members of a rival gang. Authorities say 14 of the 17 shots fired struck the truck, killing Froylan and paralyzing Tatiana, though they have not said which of the suspects pulled the trigger. All three men have criminal records, mostly for nonviolent drug-related offenses. According to the Albuquerque Journal, federal law enforcement arrested Garley on September 13th after they say they pulled him over on I-40 with more than 10,000 fentanyl pills. Albuquerque police arrested Romero Thursday at an all-sups convenience store. They say they found a gun and fentanyl pills on him. Police haven't released any details on Gomez's arrest to this point. The shooting prompted Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham to declare gun violence as a public health emergency. New Mexico is set to distribute millions of dollars to law enforcement agencies with the goal of hiring and retaining more than 400 new officers statewide. The $57 million in funding started flowing to cop shops last Friday and will support 434 positions across 103 departments. The funding is mostly from the Law Enforcement Recruitment Fund, which was created by state lawmakers last year to help attract more officers. The $57 million from this year builds on the $50 million agencies received from the fund last year. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has said increasing the number of officers in New Mexico communities is a top priority of her administration, though critics have pointed out that numerous studies show more cops don't necessarily decrease crime. New Mexico is considering a proposal that would require new construction projects to include electric vehicle charging systems in their parking areas. The plan calls for 1 to 20 percent of parking spaces at new developments to be devoted to EV charging, depending on the project type. According to the Albuquerque Journal, right now just 1% of registered cars are fully electric or plug-in hybrids. But since 2016, the number of plug-in hybrids has grown by five times, and electric vehicles have increased by 13 times in the past seven years. While there are concerns from real estate groups like the Apartment Association of New Mexico over costs that could be passed on to renters, advocates say it's important to get this done to accommodate the growing EV demand. A public hearing is scheduled before the proposal goes to the state's Construction Industries Commission for approval. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's clean car rule, proposed in July, could speed up EV adoption. Under the rule, 82% of new cars sold in the state would be required to be zero emission by 2032. Now to Laura's conversation with leadership at the U.S. Forest Service about the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon and Cerro Palado fires, prescribed burn protocols, and the future of fire and forest management in a warming world. 
Joining Laura at the table are Forest Service Southwestern Regional Forester Michiko Martin, Santa Fe National Forest Supervisor Sean Sanchez, and Santa Fe National Forest Fuels Program Manager Dennis Carroll. So there is no easy way to start this conversation, so let's just jump in. Um, Michiko, three prescribed fire projects in New Mexico in 2022 that turned into three wildfires. Um, let's start with the Hermit's Peak Half Canyon Fire, 341,000 acres. What went wrong last winter and spring? Yeah, last year was an absolutely devastating um, year for wildfires and fires here in New Mexico. Certainly a year that we would never, ever want to repeat. And um, you're right that we had three prescribed fires that escaped under um, circumstances which, um, it, well, of course, hindsight is always 2020, but when we apply that hindsight, circumstances which were just absolutely unpredictable. My colleague Dennis here is an expert, um, longtime expert in fire, fire behavior, and um, all things fire. And I'd love to invite him, Laura, if that's all right, to talk a little bit about what happened in Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon in Cerro Palato. Yeah, thanks, Laura. Thanks, Michiko. Um, yeah, so I, I first I'm going to start out by just my apologies and sympathies to the people in northern New Mexico for everything that they went through with the tragedy of these fires. I just I need to say that. And I've been thinking about this, like Michiko said, I've been part of this for a long time. I've been thinking about this for a long time. The, the story that comes to mind, and I'll be brief, is how I started my career. And I started in the early 2000s and 2002. The people that were before me and kind of overlapping with me, the largest fire those folks saw was like five, ten thousand acres was a big fire. That was the slideshow that they had their experiences that they had in their mind and then moving forward into 2000 in the drought that started in the late 90s in the West and is still perpetuating into now. Their experience that they had, they got surprised. They went through an evolution, through a portal, a learning lesson with Cerro Grande and the tragedy that happened here 23 years ago. Uh, my career has been in drought for 20 plus years. Uh, my experiences and my experience with the fire behavior are as such that that's how you base your actions off of, whether it's wildfire, prescribed fire, or planned. Um, I feel what we went through in this last year, and then not just last year, but over the course of the last few years, our, the slideshow is not good enough. And what we're experiencing out there under prescribed fire conditions, under wildfire conditions, we're going through another portal. We're going through another evolution. Just like we learned from Cerro Grande and all the changes that came with that, we're very serious about what changes need to come with moving forward in the timing of the wildfire crisis strategy and the tragedy that happened here in northern New Mexico. Conditions are changing. Fire is very dynamic. We need to learn from it. We will continue to learn from it, but we don't, we need to keep building our experience. And it's, it's been very different. Last year I saw fire behavior I've never seen before in my career. Yeah, so I remember on April 6th, you know, um, last spring was horrible, even here in Albuquerque, dry, windy. Um, and I remember on April 6th, um, when I got that press release from the Forest Service saying that Las Dispensas had been declared the Hermit's Peak wildfire. Um, can you talk about those days and what that felt like and what was happening? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a very interesting spring. We had a, a lot of late rounds of moisture uh, that built up the snowpack and brought in uh, moisture through February and March. 
Um, the district was looking at particular windows for this lost asbestos area. And within, I think it was, uh, it was a, towards the middle of March and towards the end of March, within two weeks of April 6th, there was moisture there and it was too wet to do things. I think uh, what really caught people by surprise, and it's reflective in some of the, the data, the stats from the weather of how rapidly things changed and came into uh, a hot, dry, windy pattern. This is April 6th, you mentioned. It's the beginning of the month. They're trying to catch this prescribed fire window soon after these moisture events to, to meet objectives and be between, like we are in the spring, between winter and summer and prescribed fire season and then entering into fire season. It's always a challenging time. The weather, we, the weather conditions we experienced, uh, the, hot, the, the driest on record for April and May and the fourth hottest in April and May. And it leads to that transition of uh, that moisture. And what we're dealing with is weather, right? Weather changes day to day. And these folks had a three to four day forecast. That's typically what we depend on for a window to get a you know, two, three day project done. But what couldn't be predicted is what was coming, what we didn't know was coming in the rest of April and the rest of May and how rapidly things deteriorated with those conditions. So everyone knows, Sean, everyone knows the climate is changing. I mean, even for someone like me who has only been in New Mexico a few decades, I feel the forests are different. I see how they are different. Um, the science certainly is telling us a lot about what's happening, but in 2022, do you think that the agency was taking climate change seriously? I believe when we look back and going back to April 5th, uh, we didn't know what we didn't know. And uh, that was actually one of the, the findings from the review that, that occurred is what uh, that we, we, you know, we couldn't uh, stay complacent or rest on our laurels is that we needed to really look at the, the changing climate. And uh, as Dennis described, you know, just the, the extreme weather conditions um, and how that is being driven by a, by a changing climate. And, uh, and, and so it's important for us to, to look at that. And that's one of the, the, the key things that we're doing different now in our planning is making sure that we're having the, the most recent science, uh, the most up-to-date modeling, um, that we're really uh, putting every type of predictive service uh, in, into place um, and, 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 and having that for situational awareness. Uh, because. It, you're, you're right, our, our forests are in crisis. Uh, you know, 100 years of, of fire suppression, and then you, you add on top of that these extreme weather uh, events that are you know, making it hotter, drier. Uh, it just, it, it's this recipe for disaster, and unfortunately, that's what we saw last year. Yeah, so um, the Cerro Palato fire in the Jemez also ignited in the spring of 2022 and the investigation that was just released in July showed that wildfire also grew from a prescribed burn, uh, a pile burn that had been done in the winter of 2022. What went wrong there? I think that's a, a great example of uh, not realizing, just as Dennis described, the, the extremely changing conditions. Uh, again, going back to like April 5th, you know, before that, we wouldn't have you know, thought that uh, one of our prescribed pile burns uh, that we had completed in, in, in January and February, that it would pop up in April. Um, that, after that many snow events. After you know, numerous snow events on top of it, um, it wouldn't it'd pop up. But it popped up because of these extreme climate 
conditions, you know, that getting to the, the, the winds, like everybody knows how windy it was. Um, I remember sitting in on the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon, uh, the, the, the briefings that were going on, and the incident meteorologists and the fire behavior an analysts are saying, you know, there will be textbooks and history books written about these days right now. This is unimaginable. We could have never imagined, um, you know, adding to, you know, the, the, the hottest, driest a April, May. It was also, you know, we had, you know, a record red flag warnings and red flag conditions over the same time period. And, you know, these measures and then seeing kind of the extreme going from, like Dennis said in March, of having snow and then extreme drying, and then we went to, you know, an extremely wet period. That transition from that extreme dry to that extreme wet period, that's the most extreme uh, transition for parts of New Mexico that they haven't seen in 130 years since, you know, the, these records have been, been gathered and, and monitored. Um, the world is very, very different today than what we thought it was on April 5th. Yeah. Um, Michiko, why do these investigations take so long? Like with Cerro Pilato, um, it was like almost a year and a half later that we found, the public found out what had happened. Oh, wow. Why do they take so long? Well, I can, I can promise you that we're very, very thorough and we try to take as least amount of time as possible. Um, we bring, we go, one of the learnings that came out of the prescribed fire pause was that we need to be more consistent in the way that we investigate um, uh, origin and causes of fire as well as um, escape fires. And so we go through a very long, um, detailed process just to make sure that we're getting everything right because we understand um, the loss you know, the, the pain, the trauma, and we want to make sure that when we present our findings to the public that they can trust those findings because, um, you know, it's one step that we have to move forward to try to regain that trust is by doing the investigation very thoroughly and putting out um, information that the public can can trust and that we're not going to come back three weeks later and say, oh, you know, um, actually, uh, we, we, we uncovered another, we overturned another rock and found some new information. So I do apologize because I know that um, when we have a, a devastating event like this, the public wants answers and they want them fast. And we certainly understand that. Um, and we also take very seriously our duty to ensure that the information that we put out can be trusted and that we can um, make good decisions from them. Yeah, so the Black Fire in the Gila, um, 325,000 acres last year, which is also human-caused. Um, what do we know what happened there? Do we know anything? Oh, gosh. Help me out, Sean and Dennis. I was, I was on the Black Fire with one of the incident management teams, and uh, I'll tell you a quick, cool, and maybe not cool, but interesting anecdotal story. I started on the Wilderness Ranger District where that fire was in 2002. The first wildfire I ever been on my career was called the Black Fire. Mm. We caught it at 42 acres or something. Mm. Uh, the rest of the next two summers, I was out there doing initial attack in these mountains. And come there 20 years later, I'm on my district. My old boss is still there. And we're on the Black Fire again. Mm. That's near the state record in size. Mm. And all those fires that we handled and suppressed just have been burnt over probably maybe a couple times. Right. It's an interesting perspective for me 20 years later about what I was doing in the first part of my career, very exciting and all this stuff, but now as I get older and I see this, it's like to all that we're talking about through change uh, with conditions, climate and weather and the extremes, 
that's what struck me. And then dealing with this very large fire with, uh, with an incident management team over that kind of ground is very challenging. I don't know much about the ignition, but having been there previously and then last summer on, it was a beast and it was very difficult terrain and very uh, challenging to deal with, just like hermits and everything else. And two different ignition sources, same result um, in a big way. Yeah. So during the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, the Forest Service Chief Randy Moore shut down prescribed fire projects, called for a review, and issued a new protocol for prescribed fire nationally. Dennis, what has changed since 2022 on the ground in New Mexico? So good question, Laura. Uh, just like I had mentioned in the previous segment about the evolution of change that came post Cerro Grande, we're going through something similar. And it's this pause, I think, was important to kind of collect our thoughts and put down on paper what some of these things we need to think about are. Without going into extraordinary detail, um, the things that I'm taking away is wanting a lot more engagement from uh, agency administrators and line officers, being more engaged and knowing more about the projects, being able to speak to them, ask questions, document those questions through the go, no-go processes that we have. Um, we used to talk about drought, but now we're going to formally talk about drought and formally document that conversation. And as Sean said previously as well, um, having many minds at the table to have uh, a good discussion, and so we're keeping each other in check. More checks and balances to how we move forward with authorization. Now when we're moving through prescribed fire, some other things are acknowledging more resources that'll need to be on scene uh, with our contingency resources being closer or not on scene, but closer within 30 minutes response time. And then also that kind of the back end of the prescribed fire, as far as a patrol plan, critical weather step up plans and things, when we're talking about four month holdovers from pile burns, that we know we gotta stick with this a lot more intensely using new technology with infrared systems and things that we can start checking things as we're moving into prescribed fire season. Yeah. Oh, oh, well, thank you. I was just thinking that, Dennis, you're just really highlighting some of the additional ways that the Forest Service has changed, um, you know, to the question that you were asking earlier, Laura. And I think one of the big things uh, in, that's kind of embedded in what you just said was that the Forest Service is really recognizing the complexity of prescribed fire. And, you know, I remember as a little girl that I would be out in the backyard with my father and we would do pile burnings. And you wouldn't think that this was something so complex. But as Sean and Dennis were earlier talking about of, you know, how we're finding with the mega drought, the residual heat that just stays in the ground and reignites months after, that's complex in, in a complexity that we had never seen before. So I think that that's an example of another kind of learning and way that the Forest Service has changed is really just understanding that, you know, we always knew that we were, um, we had an inherently dangerous job and now we are just recognizing even more so the complexity that's embedded it because of the changing climate and because of the mega drought. Yeah. So. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was going to say, and so, you know, and to add to to what Dennis said, you know, th those specifics. But the other part that we're we're doing um, is, you know, engaging with the public, is, is making sure that uh, they're at the table as well. And then that comes in a number of, of different forms. Uh, we're going out and, and having field trips. If somebody wants to actually go and walk a unit with us, uh, with our with our with our fuel specialist, with our burn bosses, we're doing that. Last week we had a, a town hall meeting in, in Santa Fe right at uh, the uh, Aztec Springs community. There uh, we're planning to do a prescribed burn directly adjacent to that community. Uh, we want to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with those neighbors.
partners with those landowners that are likely most directly affected. Um, we're wanting to meet people where they're at and, and the way they're wanting to do that. Uh, having town halls, having one-on-one -on -one conversations, uh, making sure that all of our elected officials at the, the county level, state level, uh, and national level are understanding. And uh, we had a, a town hall uh, two days ago in, in Regina that uh, a lot of the feedback we got even from some of uh, the elected officials like their staff members was wow we didn't realize all of the the prep work and the the thought and the, the preparation that goes into conducting a prescribed burn and so wanting to engage with the communities that we serve uh, in, in a very meaningful way to hear their concerns uh, to make sure that you know what, is there a blind spot that we're not aware of um, that they might know because they live right there uh, that we're listening to them and, and engaging in that and, and adjusting course. So um, one of the things that I've been thinking about because I've looked at some of the, the old prescribed fire plans, they're long. There's like a lot of planning that goes into them. They're complex. Um, are people, does the Forest Service empower people on the ground to push back um, if conditions aren't right or if something goes wrong? Absolutely, absolutely. It's not a, it's the, this talk of pressure that's out there. Um, I think it's uh, convoluted in some way sometime. Um, we all know what we're up against with everything, but never in my experience has there been pressure to light a match. The pressure we do put on each other is to get something ready. And that's the message that we've sent through our ranks uh, from the archeologist or biologist to the, to the burn boss or the agency administrator is, you need to have the project ready. Get the compliance work done, get the preparation work done uh, so that you have the advantage to take advantage, uh, to be able to take advantage of when to when it comes. But never pressure to say it's time to light this this spring. No, 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 no. Uh, but this is where the Dennis, more. Wouldn't you see that's one of the changes too that we've experienced that now before you do a prescribed burn if it's a multi-day every single day folks in. are empowered to empowered and yeah. then what we were talking about is like having discussion not just with the agency administrator but the firing and holding bosses and making sure and documenting that this plan that we're about to embark on is bought in by everybody who's involved. Um, I think these conversations that we keep touching on and the, the more formal and documented conversations and having the minds at the table are very important. One comment I do want to bring up too is uh, the, the timing of this tragedy is interesting with the wildfire uh, crisis strategy and that uh, one thing that I see the agency doing, um, it would have probably still went on without this, but we're starting to think about and treat prescribed fire as the same crisis as we see wildfires unfolding. And I see the, the level of support starting to come from the agency and the coordination for resources, funding, all these different things. It's coming together uh, coincidentally with the timing of the strategy, but to really give the planned prescribed fire work where it's in our court to pick the time and place and conditions, we're starting to get the attention we need to focus more on it the way we need to. So, and the Forest Service is not unique this way, but I've been covering environmental issues for like more than 20 years, and I see how slow agencies like the Forest Service are to change. And, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it's, it's easy for me to say, holy smokes, um, conditions and life basically on this planet has changed faster than than some of our agencies have. Um, does the Forest Service have the 
the capacity and the political will to really make these changes to keep up with what's happening on the forests. Absolutely. Um, I think like, like Dennis said, you know, we have a very clear priority uh, across the agency to focus and address the wildfire crisis. Uh, the, the health of our forests and, and frankly the health of our forests gets to the, the health and safety of our public, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it is a very clear from a priority standpoint of the agency. Uh, the Congress has come through and appropriated. I think there's you know about seven billion dollars that have been appropriated to to address this uh, this crisis head on. And uh, I'm new to the Forest Service, seven months here, um, but what I've seen, and so you know, my tenure has, has been all change, but I, I see a huge desire. Uh, this is, this, like Dennis and I were talking this morning, uh, he said, this is what I've been hoping for my entire career, uh, was to see this, uh, this, the straight focus on this priority, the health of our forests, the safety of our public, um, and the resources to, to get it done. And so I can tell you our team here on the Santa Fe is very excited and, 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 and embracing uh, all of the, the, the change and recognizing that uh, you know, we're in this ever-changing environment. And so we can't uh, sit back and you know, we have to be continually learning over and over again and, and, and making those efforts um, and, and, and you know, treating uh, our, our forests uh, the, the way we need to to address this crisis. Reactive versus proactive. Yeah. We, we acknowledge, we talk about, we haven't touched on it yet, but fire is an inevitable part of our landscape mm -hmm. and our ecosystems. It is. Um, what we deal with on the suppression side and in the worst possible conditions when something starts in an unwanted time and place is reactive. And we still are going to continue to do that. We'll have to do that and give attention. But the likelihood of success on some of those events and the way they're unfolding uh, we're going to see more uh, values and in infrastructures in danger or lost or threatened or more lost, I guess. But uh, just thinking about this on the proactive side, and this is what we're going for. And like I do, this is a great opportunity, this wildfire crisis strategy. We have a long way to go because of what happened with building trust and being transparent and engaging our public. And it's a good thing it's forcing us that direction because that's where we need to be. But to be on the proactive side and, and having the choice, knowing fire is part of the system, to be able to pick the time and the place and the conditions and the right resources with all these changes that we're gonna start incorporating and learn from, from last year, our odds are, are way better. I, we, we talk about 99.8 whatever percent of success. We, and it's not getting hung up on something that happened last year. We have to get hung up on that to make sure that we minimize the chance of that ever happening again. We can't promise that it won't ever happen again, that a fire won't escape. But the odds in defending our values at risk, our communities, our ecosystems, our watershed, our tribal lands, uh, everything, we have a much better chance if we can pick the time and place to reintroduce fire versus being at the mercy. If conditions keep changing and getting more extreme, we're not having great success in these suppression events. Well, so that's something that I, I would like for you to talk about a little bit. You know, there were people even before Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon, who were going to oppose prescribed fire projects. Um, looking at a place like, for example, the Santa Fe watershed or any number of packed forests in New Mexico, if, the, if you couldn't use prescribed fire, what other tools are there? So the initiation of that project was before my time, but the person who was uh, greatly involved with it was my mentor, and I spent a lot of time in there with him, 
the district and all the treatments that went on to, to bring it to the condition it's in now. A lot of discussion was had about removal and mechanical work and this, this, and thing, this, this type of thing. And all that I've learned in my career, and then what, the, what you find is the, that watershed, there's one road in the bottom, and you're talking a 1,200 foot climb at 80%, 60% slope up to the ridgelines, there's no access. The tiny road that goes up there through Canyon Road, you're not gonna haul log trucks down there. Uh, so like mechanical removal was not really a feasible option there, but as I've learned over 20 years, and not just the watershed, but everywhere, it, it's just not about removal and cutting. It, you can create activity fuel when you cut, something that's maybe more volatile for burning after you manipulate it. Uh, and then we have to think about the ecology and what we know about the fire ecology of our mountains and what role it played. And we know that we have a lot of landscapes that were considered frequent fire forests where fire was the recycler for this dead wood accumulation. It pruned the live trees, it kept the live tree densities in check, and uh, it, it uh, promoted more open stands. We can't replace that with mechanical work alone. That's what I've learned through my career, and I think the agency is on board with that and understanding. All tools are on the table when it comes to implementing these treatments but we won't be successful with the wildfire crisis strategy in defense of our values at risk and the things that we care about without fire as part of the plan. I think it's fair to say that there has always been some tension between the Forest Service and communities, particularly in northern New Mexico. Sean, you are from Las Vegas, but fairly new to the job as forest supervisor on the Santa Fe. What are you doing in your role to be building trust? my most in, important thing and it's the you know the priority for me and, and for our team on the Santa Fe is to, to, to focus on trust and what I've shared with the team is is two things uh, that if, if we we focus on the these two uh, approaches that you know we will be building trust and one is to know and relate to our community and the other is to be a community asset and you know knowing and, and relating to the community uh, you know one is to be a part of the community and, and many of our team lives in the communities. Um, and, and many of our team members uh, have very deep roots in the communities as well, uh, many, many generations. And so, uh, you know, being, being a part of the community, uh, meeting with people one-on-one uh, -on -one and, 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 and engaging. One thing that I've heard a bit of feedback is, you know, making sure that our folks are, are living in the communities that they serve because they don't want uh, to just see be seen in the rearview mirror at the end of the, the work day or at, you know on, on a Friday and uh, you know really live there um, experience uh, the, the struggles uh, also you know experience the, the successes is, is get out and, and meet one-on-one -on -one. and so that's been uh, really important for me uh, I've gone out and, and done uh, tours of the, the Hermit's Beak, Half Canyon, uh, burn, burn Scar with, uh, with locals and, and gone. And you know, David Martinez, I think he was, uh, you know, um, ProPublica did a, a story about him and, and his plight and, and not finding a house. I've gone and, and sat in his trailer with him in Monteplanau and just wanted to, to hear his story and, and um, you know, see how we could help. Now the Forest Service, you know, we couldn't build him a house, but uh, you know what, we helped fix the road to Monteplanau, that's access to the forest, and it's something that, that we could do. And so that's like an, an example of then being that asset, is knowing and relating and understanding our communities. Um, understanding here in northern New Mexico, we have extremely deep ties and connections to the land, uh, whether it's our tribal communities or, you know, historic land grant communities and, and uh, understanding and recognizing that just how important the land is. Um, 
one of my friends, Max Trujillo County Commissioner in San Miguel County, said, you know, that we are a people uh, of the land, and and, and understanding that that great connection with the land um, and all that the land has provided. Uh, our tribal uh, partners for time immemorial and the land grant communities for for centuries you know providing firewood uh, herb gathering uh, pinon picking grazing hunting fishing y y you name it uh, people have been living on the land in in together as one and so then the forester what can we do to help facilitate that how does that asset uh, come in and so when we say we're going to do something we need to follow up and, and do it and be very transparent that again comes back to those conversations, whether they're one-on-one -on -one conversations, whether they're town hall type conversations, whether they're field trips on, on our, in our units. Uh, maybe it's going and, and walking you know, a fence line with, with a landowner and understanding what might be going on there. Um, and then taking that information and, and translating and say, okay, well, what can we do to, to help facilitate firewood? Firewood is an incredible uh, necessary resource for the people in northern New Mexico. That's how most people heat their homes. So. You know, we're converting a lot of the, the hazard trees right now on, on the burn scar and uh, taking them and, and, and getting them and making it all available, free wood permits, things like that, where people could come out into the forest. But we're also working w with Mora uh, County and the Neighbors Helping Neighbors program to get wood hauled to communities. Uh, we, we hauled a bunch of wood last year from the fire, like to Romesa and to the, the community there in Pecos. We're looking to haul more wood to uh, Mora this year and also with the Neighbors Helping Neighbors getting wood to those processors that then they're able to get to uh, the, those elderly folks and folks that might not be able to go get wood on their own. And so I, I think you know, from a combination of get, knowing and relating and understanding the, the needs of the community and then putting it into action and, and the Forest Service really being uh, a, a helper in that asset, uh, I think is, is a recipe for uh, for building that trust with these communities. Uh, we're not gonna uh, fix our, our wildfire crisis without the support and help of our communities. Right. So I feel like this maybe isn't something that um, federal officials typically talk about. And certainly, you know, FEMA is the agency that's working on rebuilding and, and that sort of thing. But I w I'd like to know what the Forest Service is doing in terms of reconciliation and healing with communities. Yeah, Laura, thank you for your question. And I think it really goes to what Sean was sharing just a moment ago, that part of reconciliation and part of healing is recognizing our part that led into the devastating fire and um, sharing and being a part of the solution, right? Being a part of working with the community to um, help rebuild um, lives and livelihoods post-fire. Um, you know, we can't take away the pain and the loss, but I think that what we can do is promise to the community that we will be there and walk with them into a future, um, you know, into a future of, of repair, restoration, and rehabilitation. So I think that's what we can do, um, and and we are, um, along with our federal partners, trying to do the most that we can to ensure that um, that we are helping folks become whole, that they are recovering what they've lost to the best extent that we can. I know it's not perfect, and it's been a long, long road. Um, but as Sean said, you know, really just trying to understand um, what we can do to help people, and then delivering on that. Yeah, and Dennis, I know these issues are really important to you and we've talked about them over the years, but why should anyone trust the Forest Service when it comes to 
prescribed fires? It's a great question. Um, everybody said we got a lot of work to do, there's no question, but why should they? I kind of touched on it, I think, earlier um, in that fire is part of our system. It's part of our backyard. It's part of, it's just like hunting and fishing and all the wood gathering, everything else. Fire is part of this too. We're not going to be able to live without it. Sean touched on something very important. It's, it's a societal problem. It's just not a forest service problem, but we're the stewards. We're the ones responsible. Uh, I would say like, why should we be trusted? Because the alternatives aren't very good. Uh, if we think a fire is inevitable and having it play out under its own circumstances isn't a good option, I don't think. It's not just here in New Mexico, but we see it across the West. There, there's places that are in danger. There's some places that are gonna be in dire straits. We don't know when it's gonna happen or if it's gonna happen in our lifetime, but all the ingredients are there for something bad to happen. So by working with the communities, rebuilding the trust, the big one for me is transparency about what, when, and where we're doing, building those relationships like the community meeting in Santa Fe the other day was great. Concerned landowners asking hard questions. And they weren't combative, but they, were, they really wanted to know. And it was a great conversation. And that's the, the model I see moving forward is continuing this level of engagement to build that trust and understand that fire's part of our landscape. And in my opinion, um, I know people don't trust the government uh, for a variety of different reasons. This situation is very complex, but we know the alternative. I, th I, think, our, our, I think our situation is still gonna be better with all the things that we can change moving forward from this disaster, integrating with our community, building that support, and using the tools necessary to do it more on our terms versus being at the mercy of Mother Nature. So we've talked a little bit about transparency and um, you know the town hall meeting and stuff like that. Um, you know, I have been asking the Forest Service since April 2022 to have on-air conversations about Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon, prescribed fire, climate change. Um, and it, it's taken a year and a half for that conversation to happen. Um, what is the Forest Service doing in terms of better transparency with the press? Oh, that's a great question, and I hope this is an example of um, of really just being available, being open, and willing to talk. And um, I apologize that it took so long for us to get here, but I um, certainly would invite um, additional conversations. You know, should you want them, and we won't make you wait a year and a half again. Um, so, I, I think that um, so so sorry I, that it did take so long. Everything, even from the way that we um, work with the press during suppression to the kinds of engagements that Sean's talking about when we have a prescribed fire, we are really just throwing, um, you know, lifting up the curtain, throwing the room open, and just inviting people in because we see that as a necessary step towards rebuilding trust with the community. Um, so hold us to that, I, and I mean that. <laughs> hold us to it. <laughs> um. So we've been talking a lot about policies and protocols and changes and big overwhelming issues, but sort of at the end of the day, we are all just four human beings sitting around a table together. Um, and certainly so many New Mexicans' lives have been impacted. Um, I'd like to start with you, Sean. Um, you know, what do you wanna say to New Mexicans about last year, 
and also about the future of fire in New Mexico's forests. Yeah, um, I think taking a cue from like Michiko and say, you know, one is to, to apologize for the Forest Service's role last year. Um, I was working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, last April, uh, watching the, the briefings and, and everything going on uh, so far away was, was pretty helpless uh, feeling for me. And um, you know, my parents were evacuated for, I think, a total of about five weeks. Um, got a cousin that, that lost a home, uh, numerous friends and family evacuated, and, and I've seen a lot of the the devastation and destruction that occurred because of last year, um, and, and it's and it's it's really difficult. And I can't put into words the you know the, the feeling that I have, uh, and I can't even imagine those that uh, lost everything and their lives will be forever changed. Um, so I totally recognize that, and uh, what my commitment is, and. You know, I guess I, I should go back and say it, it actually changed my life as well because uh, it changed my trajectory uh, to find a way. I'd been trying to, to find a way to come back home, and there was an, was an opportunity to, to come home and, and help, uh, to, to help try to heal, uh, to help uh, recover, restore, and, and to really think about the possibilities in, in the future and how we can live together and, and work together, uh, knowing just how important the land is to uh, people in, in northern New Mexico, and as Dennis said, the, the stewards that have been entrusted this responsibility with the Forest Service, it's not a responsibility that we take very lightly, and that we are, are committed to being uh, part of the communities, and that we're committed to working with our communities uh, to, uh, to address uh, the, the crisis that, that's before us, and, and to really heal, uh, recover, restore, and, and build a really new future for northern New Mexico together. Right. Dennis, the future of fire in New Mexico. It will be here. It's going to be something that uh, we're going to have to engage on, and it's going to be part of our lives. The future of fire. Um, I, I think I've touched on it before. It's this reactive versus proactive thing, and I'll, I'll touch on it again. If, if Again, building the trust, having the transparent conversations, engaging, making this a cultural shift here in New Mexico to accept and acknowledge and deal with fire together not just the agency in a vacuum, but trying to be transparent. There aren't very good options for us, but we know, like from Sarah Pilato, the story's not out there yet, and I'm glad you, I have one more time slot here. The irony of uh, uh, that, that, what happened to that fire, the escape prescribed fire, but the interactions with the treatments from the landscape project there that happened in the early 2010s, up against over almost a 40 mile an hour wind, steered fire away from that community because of the cutting and burning treatments. This stuff works. I want that to be the future of fire in New Mexico, where we have successes like that, that we're invited to talk about and share about. And I want people to know that these kind of treatments work and by working together and focusing and prioritizing where we place these treatments, they do work, they do have an effect. And it's a way that we're gonna be able to live with fire going into changing times in the future. Chico, we are out of time, but last words. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I won't sugarcoat it. We are in a wildfire crisis. New Mexico is in a wildfire crisis. 
The good news, though, is that we know what to do about it. You know, Dennis has talked about mechanical thinning, prescribed fire. So we know what to do in order to help the five um, national forests in New Mexico be healthy and be resilient. And working together with our um, residents of New Mexico, we can get there. So I am very optimistic about the future, but it starts with um, commitment to addressing the wildfire crisis that's before us right now. Well, thank you all for coming in to have this important conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. Be sure to follow our pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. You can give us feedback or just stay up to date as we post previews and news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, September 25th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.